Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez destroys minority leader Kevin McCarty in the house. I've been concerned about the supply chain and how they try to make it an issue. We're going to clarify that again. We're going to talk about Larry Summers and inflation and what we should do about stimulus, etc. Folks, we have to understand these issues, first of all, because the only way we are going to elect the right people to ensure that they do what's in our best interest is to really understand this stuff. And it's not difficult. They just want you to believe that. Last but not least, journalist and real estate developer Ravi Kaban discusses with a union uh, activists about what's going on with few airlines and other work matters. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Welcome to the special edition of Politics Done Right with Egberto Willis. And I am your co-host today, Robbie Caban. And I'm really excited to bring on one of my favorite people, a whistleblower activist for labor in Atlanta, Georgia, Yvette Avery. You guys doing today? Yvette, actually, I want to give you the chance to introduce yourself. I know you, but could you please just give a little snippet about who is Yvette Avery? Well, hi. Yes, you said I'm Yvette Avery, a unionist, workers' rights activist here in Atlanta, Georgia. Been around for several years just fighting for people's rights. You know, we, we have to do that, especially in this state, this right to work at will. So that's something that I like to do. And that's something that's in my heart that keeps pushing me every day. And how how long have you been a labor activist? I've been a labor activist uh, almost 15 years. 
We're going to talk about a little bit about what happened to you. Let's get right into it, if you don't mind. Um, You worked for a huge corporation in Atlanta, Georgia, an airline. Most of the time, people don't think of airlines as corporations. And you were there seven years, impeccable record. And your story, uh, I'm going to catch people up to speed. And then we'll get into um, some additional questions. I believe you recently interviewed with Egberto alone. But for those people that don't know you. So there are many people who have been uh, retaliated against and terminated. But your story is is interesting, not only because uh, we all need to talk about these things in the day and age of workers' rights and people quitting and uh, exploitation of workers with corporations. But you were there with an impeccable record for seven years and you were hired while you worked for another company. But once you became effective as a union organizer, uh, basically helping your coworkers to get medical, to get time off, to get things that any, you know, responsible, righteous employer would offer, you were targeted and you were told what exactly? Could you brief people? Yeah. So I was pulled into the office and told that all of a sudden my job with UPS was now a conflict of interest with Delta Airlines. After seven years being hired, as you said, with it on my resume. So all of a sudden it's a conflict of interest and told me that I had to choose between which job I wanted to keep. But interestingly enough, during that time, the work that you were doing, the organizing um, was actually making a little headway, wasn't it? We were right appropriately organizing, writing letters to the company, advising, you know, this is what the staff needs. This again, basic things. I think there's something interesting about your particular case, because again, other people have, this has happened to a lot of people, but you in particular with this impeccable record who disclosed this on your resume was still targeted. And the people you were organizing, and I'm glad you mentioned the company, um, were they, just tell us a little bit about some of your coworkers. So these are called below wing employees. And were they um, predominantly people of color? Were they predominant? Tell a little bit about that. There's reason I'm asking. Right. So the I was actually a gate agent, so I was above wing worker, but I was helping mm-hmm. to organize the below wing workers and cargo workers, which are predominantly people of color. So I'm out front being boisterous about, you know, what they needed because I came from below wing. So I knew very much, you know, and were very you know aware of the things needed there. So I stood out as somebody who was speaking out and they didn't want that to catch wind above wing as well, which is also predominantly people of color and women. So they stepped in really quickly to try to see how they could, you know, move me on out the way. I'm glad you explained it that way. And I, I need to really work a little better at, I know your story, so I'm, I'm, but I want to get to some, I guess what people would call the meat and potatoes. So there are components. And thank you for clarifying that you were above weighing the front, the frontal employees, because oftentimes the face looks a certain way in certain mm-hmm. departments. And then the people doing the work, some people may call it the hard labor, the um, grunt work looks a certain base too. Right. And so you were there as a, as a frontal employee working for people who weren't always seen. Is it fair to say that those people were predominantly black and brown? Yes, of course. Is it fair to say, and, and the predominant, the people in the departments that are, that make basically the operation run who are predominantly black and brown were ununionized, unrepresented, right? Right. There's an interesting thing about this company. Um, are there certain departments that are unionized in the same company? 
same company, the pilots are the only unionized workforce, predominantly white and male. Oh, definitely uh, a big difference. So that that's fascinating. Same company, Delta Airlines in Atlanta, Georgia. And ironically, Atlanta, Georgia is a right to work state, right to fire. Um, and you, after you were retaliated against, I believe you were suspended for 30 days, right? Without pay. Months, no pay. And then you uh, had, then you were, tell us what happened. You you even have a recording from an HR rep, rep right? A Delta Airlines HR rep. And during the month you were suspended, because um, of course, tell me a little bit about the experience you had when you were suspended. Were there people calling you? What were they telling you? Um, oftentimes when people are really strong like you, they they get all these people in the background. I've seen Maxine Waters talk about this. Maxine, you got to tell him this. Maxine, keep going. Maxine, this. So what was happening during this time? I, I believe you even got sent an article, something that the airline was doing. Um a marketing component. Talk a little about that, please. Yes. Yeah, so it was a lot going on uh, during that time frame. So being suspended, of course, people from HR reaching out and they wanted me all of a sudden again to follow Delta policies, but you put me out on the street and didn't want me to record anything that was transpiring between us, even though that was my right in this state of Georgia in the one party law. So but besides that, of course, we have people coming out of the woodwork from saying, hey, this has happened to me. This has happened to me. You know, it's a lot of people who have done been done wrong and retaliated against and harassed at this company who never spoke out, you know, but they came to me and let me know what their stories were. So I had a lot of people coming around doing that as well. Besides that, of course, um, I'm being suspended. Delta Airlines is out here paying $83,000 to open up the MLK uh, monument all of a sudden, you're suspending me. Now you're saying, hey, we believe what MLK believed in, which you really don't. So it was two faces. The company puts one face out for the public, but we as employees was getting another face. So it was it was a lot going on at that time. Definitely a lot going on. Thank you for being so transparent about that. And the, the interesting part is I know you personally, which is why I asked Alberto, um, can I please interview Yvette? You know, I know he did, but this is a little bit of a different angle, more than a, the update on what occurred. Ultimately, you sought legal counsel. You did. Were you able to find, first of all, were you able to find an attorney in Atlanta, Georgia? No, attorneys in Atlanta would not touch it. Uh, Delta owns Atlanta in many aspects. So through not only companies, politicians, as well as, you know, attorneys all have their hands somewhere within Delta. So they was like, no, we can't represent you because we have uh, we have some business with them or no, no, right. we don't do that. So I, we fly Delta. <laughs> exactly. Like I have been. No, I'm a medallion. No, why would I? So they were turning me down left and right, left and right. So you had to go with a company outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and this company it, it was so pervasive what was occurring, retaliation and terminations, um, anti-labor uh, tactics, which it went viral. But that being said, the company had an entire file. Is that right. true for Delta? Yeah, I had to go out to Philadelphia to find a company uh, attorneys that would represent me. And they had a page specifically for Delta employees. So that's how bad it is when you have a page specifically for Delta employees. People were seeking them from all over the country. 
So it's interesting for people who don't know, George's right to work, right, right to basically someone, is this fair to say someone can be terminated for any reason at any time? And the recourse they have is a legal recourse, but you're already terminated out the door. Your badge is taken, your your entryways are taken. So it's interesting. Perhaps it's more than a love for Atlanta that Delta stays in Atlanta, Georgia, and then has hubs everywhere, right? Because we're going to get into a little bit of the um, strategy that that we've uncovered here. And Egberto is going to be so kind enough to put up all these images and show exactly. We did a show the other day with Kamal Franklin of the Community Movement Builders, and he was discussing the political apparatus in Atlanta, Georgia, the quote unquote Black Mecca. And this ties right back to you because you brought up the politicians and what how companies can own a city. And we hear all these discussions of Amazon and Amazon cities. So I, I believe you are on the forefront of this. And I believe this already happened with you and that Delta, as you said, is owned uh, or owns Atlanta, Georgia. So you are a black woman. Um, is that fair to say? Uh, yes, it is. Because yeah. you, you really could be in Dominican. You could anything that made it. So. But you happen to be a black woman. Yeah. And thank you for confirming that. And you live in the or you live and work out of Atlanta, Georgia in the black Mecca. Right. I mean, that's fair to say. That's what's said. And you did work for Delta Airlines for over seven years with an impeccable record and disclosed that you had another job on your resume. And when you became effective organizing black and brown workers, you were suspended for 30 days without pay and spent a two year legal battle, had to get a firm outside of the black Mecca. And uh, in this inter during this time, did you approach any politicians, um, someone that would be relevant? I, I happen to be with you and you did it. But right. can you talk a little bit about approaching a now mayoral candidate named Andre Dickens, who was the transportation committee chair in, in Atlanta? Yeah, so I did bring this to him personally on several occasions via email, as well as when I went down to Atlanta City Hall and spoke on this same matter and got nothing was ignored, emailed, never returned. Now, if you're running now for mayor of Atlanta over uh, predominantly uh, people of color, this is a, the black Mecca, and you wouldn't even reach out during your position as a transportation chair to try to fix something or try to mediate or try to see what you could do to help that situation. I felt totally ignored. Um, and the people of Atlanta should recognize that. If you can't deal with people who work in Atlanta, and bringing you issues, then what would you do if you're over the entire city? So not sure how that's going to work out. For him. And, and I'm, I'm glad you you explained it with passion because I was really disappointed in Andre. Andre Dickens is an at large Atlanta City Council, and he he was the transportation committee chair and he had all the authority, you know, and I watched you approach him. I, wa I saw your emails to him and to just leave you out there. And the really heartbreaking part about this, Egberto, is that, um, and I don't have to tell Yvette this because she lived it, and you've already heard that this is happening to so many people, particular people, particular people in a particular city. But it's, 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 it's sad because who is the other option, right? If we have a new race, the mayoral race is Mayor Reed, who's basically a corporate. And you're going to see an image of uh, Mayor Reed with the former CEO of Delta Airlines, Richard Anderson. He's practically crying 
um, in hugging this man. And, and Richard Anderson happens to be Caucasian. And Mayor Reed happens to be an African-American male. And behind, ironically, in this image, Richard Anderson is uh, this, the now CEO, um, who's also a Caucasian male. I mean, you look at the board of directors, which Egberto is going to provide you, you scroll down this, they all look a certain way too. <laughs> and the, the now CEO is on CNN talking about how he's ashamed of the lack of diversity. And here you are trying to help who makes that airline run and they're giving, using their marketing, talking about civil rights. And you go to your transportation chair, the at-large person of Atlanta City Council, Andre Dickens, at-large, meaning he's responsible for the whole city. And he leaves you high and dry. All right. And the other part is who else do you have to go to? These are our Democrats. So are we supposed to vote Republican? Does it get any better there? Egberto, I'm saying this because this is the context of where people are of color are at in Atlanta, Georgia, that we're, where we're discussing rights to vote, right? It became a national topic. And these are our options. In other words, we have no options. I mean, is that, is that fair to say how you felt? Very true. That's exactly how I felt. It was like, who else can you go to? Like, if you can't depend on the people who are there, supposed to do their job there, then where else do you go? So we had to turn to try to, you know, do our own thing, try to push it out to the public social media wise. You know, we had to do it our own, you know, our own way. If I may piggyback on what uh, Ravi just said, because um, uh, when she said uh, no options, I just want to add a corollary to that in that the options are exactly what Yvette and Ravi are doing right now. And that is open in the eyes of people who would otherwise not have known this. So um, using platforms like these and others, Yvette and Robbie, I just have to uh, thank you guys for, for that sort of opportunity to get that information out. And I just want, I, I didn't say anything earlier, but I just want everyone to know that Yvette uh, Avery is one of my uh, heroes. I've been following her a long time after she was brought to me by both Ravi Caban and Tamara Shili, uh, went introduced me to this powerhouse out there in Atlanta that's actually traveling the country with these types of uh, uh, protests. So, uh, Ravi, uh, thanks again for bringing uh, Yvette on the platform to let Americans understand, not only with respect to Atlanta, but around the country, that there is power in workers. So thank you, guys. Anytime. The only thing I want to add on that, and thank you, Egberto, and thank you, Yvette, because she's really the one who took the hit. And I asked you about your partner and your son, because when someone like Yvette takes the hit, everyone's affected in their family. So all these people coming behind saying, keep going, Yvette, this happened to me, this happened to me. The truth, the, when people say there's power in workers, there's really only power in organized workers. Right. You know, yeah. and that that's where this company is literally, and, and I'm going to say this directly because I've actually experienced some things as well, but Clayton, the airport in Atlanta, Georgia is in Fulton County and is in Clayton County. Okay. And the revenue is the second largest employer in Georgia. And right now there's kind of a political argument um, with the um, Atlanta city who runs the airport, huge revenue, second largest employer and the uh, state who wants it. So the city is predominantly democratic. The state is predominantly Get Governor Kemp, I'm sure you've heard about it. But the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because civil rights, which, you know, obviously this is this is a is affected in that way, as we all are. 
and labor rights, right? Voting rights, the, the right to vote, the right to access voting and the right to organize, they're kind of integral, aren't they? And they're both happening in Georgia. Yvette, I wanted to, I want you to explain to people how you see it because you're not only a labor activist, you're, you're also a voting activist. I've Correct. seen you out there, you know, in the fields, in the streets. Can you talk a little bit about how you see it? Well, definitely labor and uh, civil rights, voting rights all go hand in hand. This is something that has been fought for for years. And we are here in the birthplace of MLK, where a lot of this stuff took place. And it should be a priority for these companies that are getting behind, even like Delta Airlines, getting behind these horrible voting uh, legislations and then try to, you know, back up out of it all of a sudden. But you you spending money to suppress the vote. You know, I even came out about that. These companies are suppressing the vote, but then ex- and exploiting their workforce all at the same time. So we're we're seeing all kind of, you know, things that show how they do correlate when it comes to your civil rights, your voting rights and uh, your civil rights all being violated by these companies and pressed down on the workforce. Really, Julian Bonds, who's in a photo, you know, at a Delta, at the at what you're talking about, the civil rights, when Delta's giving money to this, but also giving money to the right to restrict people's access to vote. And it's interesting because there's a pattern here. They're also restricting their employees' right to vote. And mm-hmm. it's certain people who are being restricted. And it's certain areas and communities that are being harmed and not receiving the revenue out of the airport, maybe like Clayton County. Right. And interestingly enough, Clayton County is predominantly people of color, isn't it? And Clayton County schools don't have the funding that they need. And maybe if we didn't allow this company to own a city and own politicians, do you think it might be different? Oh, it definitely would be different. And we can see that in the other models around the city who, you know, other areas that they do support well versus the areas that they don't. If it's people of color and predominantly people of color, it's not being supported. Uh, We see that and it's very obvious with these uh, corporations. I, you know, I, I want, I want, I'm mentioning this and I'm, I'm asking you about these specific topics because it's all kind of convoluted, but I want people to understand when you hear media, like there's a reporter, Maria Saporta, who, if you look at her visually, she's a Caucasian woman. Her writer, David Pentergrass, I believe, is a Caucasian man. They won't touch Delta Airlines in negative press, but they were once a court, they were once sponsored. By Delta. So when you have your media, you know, and people are so busy and concerned about their livelihoods, this is why independent media is so crucial. Do you think that's fair to say and true? Oh, very true. Because I could get no uh, none of the, the news media to touch my story. So I know for a fact, I sent them specifically myself, could not get a response on that. Nobody wants to touch Delta Airlines here, not on a anything negative. Now, they'll preach and put them out for any positive things they want to do. But it took social media and that flyer they put out uh, trying to say we could use $700 instead of paying union dues to buy video games like we're just a bunch of video game heads and sit around or drink beer. They was putting out, you know, putting out all these crazy flyers demeaning the workforce. And it caught fire only because social media caught fire and they had to cover it. Other than that, they wouldn't have touched the story. If If it's negative and it's Delta, the news here is not touching. And and question, I saw that Bernie actually stood up with the labor union. Um, yeah. And there's there's a discussion. I'm not sure we can get into it today. I'd love to interview you again about diversity in labor and maybe even the lack of diversity in labor. Uh, if you could just give a few of your thoughts on that. And I'm curious, did you ever hear from Mr. Senator Sanders? 
I didn't hear from him personally, but uh, I was I would have been able to meet him in person if I was able to get to one of those uh, events that we had when he was uh, with the organizers from the Delta Workers Unite campaign. But it is an issue in the labor movement as well. Uh, I'm a teamster, been a teamster for a long time, and our representation needs to look like the workforce, look like the employees, look like the membership. If our membership, predominantly women or predominantly people of color, we need to see that instead of a white male uh, dominated area. And that's in all, you know, they looking like the corporations, but our unions need to work on that as well. That's something definitely needs to work on. Do you think that unionize that or organizing for labor would be more effective if they were operating more inclusively and, and a representative of the demographic as opposed to behaving kind of similarly like the corporation where certain people have privileges, certain people are heard, certain people are seen, as in the case with Delta Airlines, their board of directors, their executives have contracts, their pilots who are predominantly male have, have union contracts. And I mean, is that fair to say? It definitely is. When people see themselves out there, they're like, oh, OK, so they do care about us. So it's not just, hey, these same type of, you know, white males all the time. And they, these are the ones that are going to hold the power and I don't hold the power. No, you as the worker, you as the member, you hold the power. So stand up, you know, run for office, become elected, you know, become that leadership because that's what we need to do. But organized power. And when you do get in office like Mr. Dickens, OK, please don't leave your folks behind. Exactly. Answer your emails, sir. Respond to your constituency, sir. Oh, Egberto, please. Do you want to add, add yeah. input before we? Right. I just wanted to get a question before your last question. And this is to Yvette. Um, we kind of discussed this a little bit while um, we were getting on. And that is the movement, the movement that you represent, the worker movement, has started to metastasize all over the country in the last few weeks. I would just love to hear your thoughts on that because I can tell you from somebody who reports on this and have been watching this, I am so excited. And I want to know if you share my excitement and what you think going forward on, on, on these labor movements that's happening throughout the country. Like I said, I'm thoroughly overjoyed to see that now, you know, workers are realizing that they hold the power, the organized workers, especially they're calling for strikes all over the country because of, you know, uh, unfair treatment for contracts. And, you know, they realize that, you know, now, OK, these companies really need us. Hopefully the workers who are not organized will get together and organize. And I believe that's going to be our future here. More organized labor catching fire throughout the whole U.S. and people realizing that they really hold the power and they're making the money for the corporations. They should share in that. Um, they should be able to take care of their families without working two or three jobs. They should have health care. They should have pensions, things that they should have to be able to live life and enjoy life, just like the ones at the top receiving all that money. And I'd like to piggyback off of that. This is a safety factor. I mean, we're not talking about you know, Amazon had people peeing in bottles to use laboratory. I mean, inhumane conditions. Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who we paid to go into space, you know, the big millionaire, billionaire guy. OK, the airport. I mean, there's a safety factors out of the airport. It hardly ever gets makes the news. But if you force baggage people to get that airplane out and that's really the bottom line, this airline doesn't want a worker or an employee to be able to say, 
hey, no, I, I can't shove all these doors in because these airplanes have to go out because they lose money. But that's actually unsafe. An airplane can literally not be able to take off if it's balanced incorrectly. Yvette, do you have an example of a safety factor? And did you see things regarding safety issues at the airport that you're, you were concerned about? Definitely. Um, people are, because of those time constraints, take shortcuts. They're very unsafe. So therefore, we've had people who are uh, pulling up equipment to aircraft with nobody guiding them up. We have people unloading and loading aircraft where it's two men, two women to a gate when that's not enough staffing. And this is before, this is pre-COVID. So this is before, you know, the work shortage, as they claim, or the uh, shortage of employees, you know, as they claim. They were working people short, very dangerous. People are, you know, doing well above what they're supposed to be doing and getting injured, and some have even been killed out there on the ramp trying to get things done in an unsafe manner. People never know what they're up against or, you know, how close they may have come to having an incident because of people trying to get things done, get those doors shut, and get everything done under those time constraints because they want to keep their job. I mean, they're trying to do whatever they can because they know they have no recourse. The last thing I want to ask you, Yvette, is that you've had the opportunity to work for a union company and a non-union company. In your opinion, in your experience, what you've seen, what is the main difference? Well, the organized workers have job protection and bargaining ability. You know, without a union, you're in the office, you're all alone with management when you're being targeted with no representation. That feeling is a feeling no one should have to deal with or go through. It's hard when it's just you, but they can have as many management personnel as they want in the room against you versus when you have that representation standing by you and that contract that you have to make the company follow by. Yeah, when, it was definitely when you're sitting alone in that room with management, when you get called in, how do you even prove what was said and what wasn't said? It doesn't matter. It's all he said, she said, and you're wrong. So it really doesn't matter what happened because the company is going to be right in that instance always, always. But when you have a union steward, now you have someone knitting, sitting next to you. So is it equivalent? Does it feel like going to court with an attorney or without one? Is that fair to say? It is. As a steward, I've been called an attorney many times because that's what is exactly what it's like. Exactly what it's like. Yvette, I want to thank you. Egberto, I want to thank you. I hope this gives people insight into the reality of the a unionized workforce, a protected workforce. And we're not talking about you know, protecting people who, who don't do their job. That's not even this. We can get into that discussion on a follow up if you want. Yvette, do you have any commentary on that? Because I think some time. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, we can only do what we can do. I can't fire people. That's up to management. So if management doesn't do their job. You can't hold a union accountable for what management doesn't do. We have to do our job as union to protect the workers rights. If management, you know, flops off and doesn't discipline or do what they're supposed to do, all we can do is make sure it's equality and make sure they do the right thing by the people, you know? And when you say equality, that means treating people the same. So if somebody was five minutes late and somebody else is five minutes late, that means those workers should be treated the same if their exactly. records are, are instead of using things to target people. So this, this discussion is so important per exactly what Egberto said all over the country. And I hope the unions are hearing we need inclusivity. We, you know, listen to your constituency right here who's taken the hit. As, and please, everyone, if you can, is, is there still a petition? 
Now I have a petition for something else now, but no, <laughs> yeah, for uh, for drivers and safety out here. Yeah, so we, we have petitions for that as well, but it's a lot going on with workers. So we definitely, anytime you see something to support workers, stand up, join in, you know, that's all I can ask for everyone. Yvette, I want to thank you. I want you to thank you personally for taking that. If you did want a petition started, I'll start one for you. And I want to thank Alberto Willis independent media, fair media, equitable media, inclusive media. Be careful, people. Open your eyes. Look at these visuals. This is strategy and their marketing is strategy. We need the truth. And you're looking at the truth right there. She's right in front of you. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you, Robbie. And definitely thank you, Egberto, for having me on. This is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. As you know, Representative Gosar threatened Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's life with a video that he put out there with him killing her. And of course he said, oh, it's not real, it's just a joke, it's just a joke. But we know the crazies that follow folks on the right. Many times they activate, they instantiate what their leaders have to say. And Ocasio-Cortez came at him with a beauty. What I want you guys to do is listen to the words of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to El Senor Gosar, because no one could have said it any better. Check it out. I've been serving in this body just under three years. Not three years, enormous amount has happened. But in response to the Republican leader's remarks when he says that this action is unprecedented, What I believe is unprecedented is for a member of House leadership of either party to be unable to condemn incitement of violence against a member of this body. It is sad. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say, that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong, and instead decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation. What is so hard? What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? This is not about me. This is not about Representative Gosar, but this is about what we are willing to accept. Not just the Republican leader, but I have seen other members of this party advance the argument, including Representative Gosar himself, the illusion that this was just a joke. That what we say and what we do does not matter so long as we claim a lack of meaning. Now this nihilism runs deep and it conveys, uh, it conveys and betrays a certain contempt for the meaning and importance of our work here. That what we do so long as we claim that it is a joke doesn't matter. That what we say here doesn't matter. That our actions every day as elected leaders in the United States of America doesn't matter. 
that this chamber and what happens in it doesn't matter. And I am here to rise to say that it does. Our work here matters. Our example matters. There is meaning in our service. And as leaders in this country, when we incite violence with depictions against our colleagues, that trickles down into violence in this country. And that is where we must draw the line independent of party, identity, or belief. It is about a core recognition of human dignity and value and worth. So when we talk about, as mentioned in the resolution, that these depictions are part of a larger trend of misogyny and racial misogyny, racist misogyny. This has results in, in dampening the participation. And so this vote is not as complex as perhaps the Republican leader would like to make folks uh, believe. It's pretty, it's pretty cut and dry. Do you find, does anyone in this chamber find this behavior acceptable? Would you allow depictions of violence against women, against colleagues? Would you, would you allow that in your home? Do you think this should happen on a school board? In a city council? In a church? And if it's not acceptable there, why should it be accepted here? Lastly, when the Republican leader rose to talk about how there are all of these double standards and lists a litany of all these different things, not once did he list an example of a member of Congress threatening the life of another. This is not about a double standard and what is unprecedented and what is tragic is the descent of transgression in this body. I grew up as a little girl with awe about our nation's capital. The reverence and the importance and the gravity of our work here. Additional 30 seconds. Gentlemen, recognized. The gravity of our work here. So my, the question that I pose to this body in response is will we live up to the promises that we make our children? That this is a place where we will defend one another regardless of belief. That our core human dignity matters. If you believe that this behavior is acceptable, go ahead. Vote no. But if you believe that this behavior should not be accepted, then vote yes. It's really that simple. We constantly hear about supply chain, supply chain, the supply chain is all screwed up. And somehow Biden needs to do something about it. Democrats need to do something about it. It's their mismanagement that's causing the problem. You know, inflation is starting to go up and it's because of the supply chain and inflation is because of what Biden is doing. Look. Here are some statements of fact. 
Inflation is not being caused neither. Well, I tell you what, let's go ahead and play the supply chain, uh, some, some inserts, some clips from the supply chain issue that, that actually played on 60 Minutes, which I thought was quite well done. And it points out that this has nothing to do with the government. And then we'll go into a little bit deeper into the supply chain issue. And not only the supply chain issue, but also the inflation issue. I think it is very important for us to understand this. Check this out. 60 Minutes did an important piece. I'm going to put the screen up right now. Uh, that, that points out exactly what I've been saying for quite a while. The real supply chain problem has very little to do with the government. It's, uh, there, there's a line that I want to read out of the interview that I think is very, very important. And what it says here is, uh, Bill Whitaker says, the truckers blame the terminals, the terminals blame the shippers, the retailers blame the truckers and the shippers. How do you get that contentious group to sit at the table, stop pointing fingers and actually clear out the backlog? And of course, uh, Gene Sirocco, one of the port managers says, that's been the toughest part. It cannot, they cannot actually get it done. Singapore and all these other countries have invested in infrastructure to solve these types of problems. Uh, the store shelf, the people who are profiting the most are those shippers who can now charge for storage, those shippers who are charging for just about everything that the delay has caused, that the private sector has caused with these delays. So the store owner, that little store owner, he is paying for this delay. That, uh, that when you are, if that little mail order business that you have, you are paying for it. It is yet another method of extraction. The supply chain, as, as shown in this particular 60-minute report, shows exactly that it has very little to do with government. It has everything to do with the private sector. It has everything to do with a few within the private sector deciding that they can take this opportunity right now for their own failures to make money on their failures. Look, it is important that we note something here. Notice what they said. The shippers are blaming the truckers. The truckers are blaming the shippers. The shippers are blaming the warehouse holders. The retailers are... Look, it's all a fight between private sectors, right? Different parts of the private sector. Has nothing to do with government. On, but the overarching argument that, that's been placed by the plutocracy here is anytime there's an issue that affect the people at large, blame the government. Why do you want to do that? Because they don't want you to see the failure that is the private sector, that the private sector is a profiteering agency that without controls continue to eat the little, continue to eat those without price and control. So let's get, let, let's get it clear here. One, they attempt to say it's this great stimulus that we put into the system that created the problem. The stimulus is responsible for nothing more than 0.4% of increased expenditures. In other words, absent the stimulus, we are just over by 0.4% how much the entire amount of money we would have spent glow, I mean, in the country. Therefore, at best, Increased inflation could only be attributed for 4%, but let, let's back, back step from there. Inflation isn't this magical thing. 
There's this mythical market everybody likes to talk about that if we put something in here that somehow it automatically prices rise. That is a false, complete economic uh, analogy. The reality is you only get price, prices can only increase if there are more people wanting a product or a service than there is availability. So when you saw the pricing peak in oil, it was a racket. How do we know that? The price of a barrel of oil has dropped, but if you look at the gasoline prices, they're still rising. But better, Saudi Arabia, here in the United States, Venezuela, and all these places have more capacity. If supposedly we wanted more oil, there is no shortage of oil. The tomatoes in the field, the corn in the field, the soybean in the field, these things that are used to make oil, these things that are used to make all the products that we use, the immediate products that are going up in prices, the eggs that we buy are local. Has nothing to do with the supply chain. And also, the pricing power from them have come from the pricing power from their supplier, from their supplier, from their supplier. It is a racket, it is, it is a group of plutocrats seeing an opportunity to rip us off and at the same time say it's government. Well, I am here to point out the reality. Government does not have anything to do with it. The stimulus within the government uh, that, that was given to the American people, replace income that otherwise would have been made that was not made by 0.4% increase. Now let's get a little deeper as far as why they would like to do this, right? They want no government regulation, right? They don't want, the private sector doesn't want government regulation. But when they screw up, which they constantly do, let's look at 2008 when we have the market crashes, when we had derivative swaps that completely destroyed the world's economy. Government came to their rescue. When it comes to creating products for drugs, etc., the universities create the products and then these people take it and then they sock it to you because you pay for it in taxes to develop it. You pay for it as they market it. You pay for it. They, the private sector, again, screws us to no end. And we then have supply chain issues. The private sector, again, says, well, we don't have enough supply because they're all sitting in Long Beach Harbor on a ship. So therefore, the supplies that are already in the stores, we just raise the prices of those because we can. They have price and power. Another failure of the public sector because they don't want government interference. Now think about this. If we had government regulation that said just-in-time inventory will be penalized as opposed to making sure that you are forced to have a certain amount of inventory. If we did all these things, if government had an equal playing field for all businesses to keep the comfort of the, of the masses. In other words, if we did the things to make sure that these shortages didn't occur by forcing a particular company methodology in the way things are done, They'll say, oh, government interference, because it will reduce on the profits the profiteers would make. But we could do that. We could have government institute policies that everybody would have to play by, which means nobody would have a competitive advantage that then allows us to have a comfortable life without any real inflation. This mythical market that people talk about, the market will dictate, is false. There ain't no market. The market is false. 
The market is something that's mandated by a few at the top that decide how it will operate. And to think that this mythical market is free for those who all want to participate is the biggest lie that has been told to every particular person that believes in this economic system. And until we get the knowledge within us to understand that it's a racket, we will continue to pay the ups and down where a certain group of people, whether we go up or we go down, they profit. Notice how Amazon profited from the pandemic and Amazon profited before the pandemic. These big corporations profited after the pandemic, during the pandemic, and before the pandemic. You know why? Because there ain't no market. They control the economic flow. Understand it, and then you'll understand what drives this system. Larry Summers' support for Build Back Better after really hitting the rescue plan pretty hard is probative, it's important, but it also shows a value issue that I take exception with him about. Let's listen to what he had to say, and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side. Reversing inflation is a top priority of his. This came after the Bureau of Labor Statistics Wednesday announcement that consumer prices were up 6.2% over the prior year. That is the biggest increase since November 1990, more than 30 years ago. My next guest has long been warning about the inflation risk in America today. Larry, you've heard Janet Yellen, the White House, uh, all say that they're still not convinced that they have an inflation problem. It's temporary. How do you respond? They forecast that inflation would be 2% this year in the president's budget. It's three times that. They said in the summertime, after they'd been initially wrong, that inflation would be back to normal by the end of the year. And they said early in the fall that inflation would subside early next year. Now they're saying that it's going to subside in the second half of next year. Sooner or later, I'm sure it will subside. But my judge is, given the inflation momentum that has built up, that it's going to take some significant policy adjustment or uh, some unfortunate accident that slows the economy before inflation gets back to uh, the 2% range. What do you mean when you say a kind of dramatic, significant policy action? Are you thinking of something sort of like what Paul Volcker had to do uh, to break the back of inflation in the early 1980s? Not talking about the kind of interest rates that Paul Volcker engineered, but we are talking about a more aggressive approach to monetary policy than the Fed is now talking about. You know, there's a lesson for Reed from the experience of the 1970s, which is the difference between higher and lower unemployment. It's two or three percent of the people being unemployed. The difference between higher and lower inflation is a hundred percent of the people feeling they're being robbed of purchasing power by higher prices. Now, I can explain, and I do in my economics classes, that higher prices mean higher wages. So the two go together. So it doesn't have that big an effect on people's standard of living. But that's not how most people think about it. I think inflation had a lot to do with electing uh, Richard Nixon. I think it had a lot to do with electing Ronald Reagan. I think for many people, inflation is a test of whether the country's under control. I think it's therefore very important for an administration like President Biden's for a Fed, like Chairman Powell's, that want to project a sense of competent control to be addressing the inflation issue. Explain to us, if you are right, why is it 
that inflation is rearing its head now. For the last 30 years, everyone who has predicted high inflation has been wrong. Uh, and you yourself you used to write just about a year or two ago about how the basics, what you call the secular trend in the economy, was uh, stagnation, was low growth, not likely to trigger inflation. What change? What what happened to change your mind? So I've never projected inflation any time in the last thirty years. What changed my mind was that this year we had a fiscal stimulus program equal to fifteen percent, fourteen to fifteen percent of GDP in an economy that was only a couple percent short of its capacity. And so if you inject that much demand with that little a capacity margin, it figures you're going to get inflation. And the only time we did anything like it was during World War II or during the Korean War when we got inflation. Your biggest concern was about that massive COVID relief bill. Do you share the same concern about the infrastructure bill and the and the other bill that might uh, go through Congress? I don't, Fareed. I, I would change those bills, but if I had to vote up or down on them, I would vote up. There are two big differences. First, those bills spend less over the next 10 years than the massive 2021 bill uh, spent over one year. Second, those bills, unlike the 2021 bill, have tax increases that cover the expenditures and, in addition, include significant public investments that will raise the potential of the economy to produce more, which will lead to further uh, tax revenue. So it's a completely different picture. So in a sense, you're saying the mistake was made by spending that $2 trillion. That's the mistake that has to be remedied. Um, you're not advocating voting down these two bills. No, I think it would it would compound the error we made last spring when we supported much too much money giving away. If now we rejected investments in expanding the economy's capacity, it would compound the error we've already made if we were to vote down this bill. Much better to fight inflation by supporting a strong and independent Fed doing what it needs to do. I tell you what, I tell you what, these neoliberal economists drive me crazy. At least he comes out and he says, let's go ahead and pass the bill because it's going to, what it'll do is increase the, uh, the, the tax base, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on the backs of the regular man, of course, regular person, of course. But here's what gets me. There are three things that gets me. First of all, he comes and he starts and he says how wrong the administration was because they projected the wrong inflation rate, which is true, right? But why did they project the wrong inflation rate? Because of thievery, because of greed. They didn't expect that the gas oil companies and all these guys were going to rip America off, which is what they're doing. There is no shortage. There is absolutely no shortage of petroleum, which by having this false shortage of petroleum, it's increasing the price of everything else. There is the, the problem with the supply chain Whose fault is that? It's the private sector. That has nothing to do with supporting the, 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 the rescue plan that America needed. America needed a humongous rescue plan because everybody was shut down 
out of work and we had to replace that. In fact, if you take a look at how much that rescue plan is worth, if the economy had not uh, catered in the first place, what you would have found out is that you would have had only 50 billion or so more money in the economy. Now let's take this a little bit further because uh, it is so important that we take this further. Uh, notice that this economist was really ready to sacrifice the average American citizen. What did they say? Oh, uh, if we don't give the stimulus only, we, we have a difference between three and four percent in, in unemployment. But if we go ahead and give them that otherwise, what we get is not a four percent inflation, but everybody pays a little bit more for their product. But we have to be consistent. If everybody, he also says he teaches in his class that that increase in cost to everybody else is not probate, it's not important because everybody's wages go up. And therefore, what happens is it's, it's a false belief that this sort, this small amount of inflation would change things. In other words, let's sacrifice the three or four percent of people so that people would not believe that things are costing more instead of educating the people to let them know there is no reason to be concerned. Educate the people as opposed to playing into their fears, which is what neoliberals and conservatives do all of the time. But most importantly, folks, most importantly, we have to understand where the problem lies. The problem lies in the basis of the economic system that is consists of greed and greed and greed. We constantly, we never penalize those who take away. We never take care of those who are the ones who create, who make this society. What we do is we go ahead and penalize the average person and we let those on the top that continue to do their things roam free. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Please remember to keep your community radio station KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT 90.1 FM. You can visit us at KPFT.org. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people.